Chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians is one of the very important passages in the Bible that deals with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14 are uh, necessary to a proper understanding of the Holy Spirit's ministry and gifts amongst us. Chapter 2 of Acts is the very familiar passage. I had thought that it was in the unison readings in the back of the hymnal, and I wish that it had been included, because uh, just as Christmas tells us of the advent of Christ, and just as uh, uh, Good Friday tells us of his death on the cross, and Easter Sunday tells us of his resurrection from the dead, so Pentecost is the birthday of the church, so Pentecost is the great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And uh, we are concerned this morning about the Holy Spirit and his relationship to us in the giving of gifts. And so chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians deals with this, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. I will pick up where Pete uh, left off reading at verse 12. If you have a Bible, it will help you a good bit to follow it. Uh, so if you'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, I will begin reading there. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor and our unseemly members come to have more abundant seemliness, whereas our seemly members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, that there should be no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body, and individually members of it. And God is appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, 
helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you a still more excellent way. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this part of his holy word. On June the 6th, 1944, what was called the greatest cross-channel in the greatest cross-channel invasion in all of human history took place. I'll never forget that morning. It was 32 years ago, and I had been waked up early by my mother to go to my summer job, which was in Pop Noble's drugstore across the street from the gymnasium near the high school, where I doubled as a part-time cook and a full-time dishwasher. I, I remember very well that there were extra editions of the paper and a great deal of uh, solemn things that began to take place as the day went on. I couldn't take it all in right at that time, but then I noticed that the boss was very serious. I remember that the President of the United States came on the radio and that he offered a prayer asking for the protection of God over the men of our country. And then it began to dawn upon me what was taking place, that that would be the longest day in the whole life of many a man that many a man would never see dark fall that day, that many a man would die, that it was a tremendously significant and important day. It was a huge military invasion, the greatest in all of history. But then when I think of the great invasion that God made at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell and promised to what Jesus had, had the promise which he had made, you remember last week we were studying about the resurrected Christ and how he had appeared to the disciples at the Sea of Galilee? Well, when his bodily presence was uh, in their midst, their eyes were drawn to look at him. They were looking at him and wondering where he would appear next, and they were filled with awe and wonder. He kept promising them that the Holy Spirit would come. And then their hearts would be unusually drawn toward him. And so when Pentecost Day came, the day that would have been the easiest of all of the festivals for the children of God to celebrate because Jews would come from everywhere to celebrate the giving of the law of God, they had come from far distant countries and were all in Jerusalem. And in obedience to Jesus' words, you remember when he had ascended, that they stood looking at him as he ascended into heaven, and Jesus had left them with a promise, and the promise had to do with power. He said that, that they were to abide in Jerusalem until they would be endued with power from on high, that they would be baptized by the Holy Spirit and with power. And so they obeyed him. And they were continually in the temple praising God. And they were in one place with one accord, 120 of them, in an upper room when the Holy Spirit came upon them. There were tre tremendous visible signs that took place. There were cloven tongues like as a fire. 
There was a mighty rush of wind that attracted the attention of people listening. And then Peter preached that magnificent sermon which is in, recorded in Acts chapter 2, which tells how the fulfillment of all that God had planned was now being worked out through Jesus' death and his resurrection and now the coming of the Holy Spirit. You remember that a great miracle of communication took place. For there were people who were from all different nations, and yet they were hearing this sermon spoken to them even in their own native tongue. And so a miracle has taken place here that attracts their attention. They were receiving the truth of God in this spectacular and unusual manner. And that day there were 3,000 people that were baptized and confessed Jesus as Lord. Now I do not believe that the 3,000 were people who spoke in other tongues. I believe that the 120 spoke in other tongues, but not the 3,000. That most of us are perhaps like the 3,000. We have believed, who have come to believe in Jesus, could not have believed in him apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And my interpretation of that passage of Scripture, which, we, which Pete read to you a moment ago, from 1 Corinthians 12, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. Now Paul is speaking to these Corinthians about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. If you take the trouble to uh, look all through 1 Corinthians, which you ought to read in a good new translation, you will see that a great part of this church is full of trouble. Paul had spent 18 months there. He had gone away. He is in Ephesus, and he received word that there is trouble back in the church at Corinth. And so he sits down to write a letter to them. He wishes to correct the divisions that existed among them. There were people who thought that they were better than others because they were baptized by Paul or by Apollos or by someone in the group. So they were splitting up in little groups. There were others in the, groups, uh, in the group who were immoral. There was a man who was living in an incestuous relationship, and so Paul had to rebuke sternly this immorality. There were Christians who were going to a court against each other and suing each other before pagans. There was trouble at the Lord's table. There was a sort of an agape, a love feast that had turned into a display where the rich people were drinking too much and, and becoming gluttons and where the poor were going away hungry. And so Paul corrects all of this. He realizes that there are people there who pride themselves in their knowledge because Corinth is not too far from Athens, the great home of the philosophers. And so he has to deal with the problems that exist. Campbell Morgan, a great expositor, has an interesting comment that's well worth remembering. He says that in the first part of 1 Corinthians, Paul deals with the carnals, and in the last part of 1 Corinthians, he deals with the spirituals. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, Now concerning spiritual, it's really spirituals. The, words, uh, the word gift is in italics here, which means that it isn't in uh, some of the best manuscripts. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. 
This is something that he has to say over and over. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the dumb idols, however you were led. They had been in the frenzied pagan worship. And so Paul says, I want to make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is a curse. In other words, there were people who were actually caught up in a frenzy in which sometimes they would speak the words, Jesus is a curse. Paul must have spoken those words himself back in the days when he persecuted Jesus. Do you remember how he went hounding after any believer in Jesus from city to city until on the road to Damascus, that light brighter than a thousand suns shone about him and he heard the voice of Jesus speaking to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In the old days, as a zealous Pharisee, he had persecuted the church and he says himself in Acts 26 in that great testimony before Agrippa and Festus that he caused many to blaspheme the name of Jesus. Now that's what Jesus is accursed would mean. To be accursed would mean to put him off his throne. To put him off his throne. To put him down. The young people have a, a vivid expression which they use today. They say, someone cut me down. Well, that's what it means here. And Paul says, no one speaking under the Spirit of God can say Jesus is a curse. And conversely, Paul says, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't mean simply the speaking of the words, Jesus is Lord, because Jesus himself in Matthew 7 says, many will come to me in that last day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do many miracles in your name? Didn't we uh, do this and that? And I will say, depart from me, I never knew you. So you can't uh, uh, put anything just to those words there. But the expression, Jesus is Lord, when we really mean it, can only have come about as a result of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. That was the earliest Christian creed. Jesus is Lord. If you go to Rome and go to the place where the Leaning Tower of Pisa is, you can buy little bits of sculpture. And one of the things that I remembered buying there way years ago when I was studying one summer with the Waldensians was a little statue of, of St. Cecilia, a beautiful lady who was a committed follower of the Lord Jesus and during one of the hideous persecutions against the Christians, a soldier came and was commissioned to kill her if she did not uh, a cursed Jesus. And boy, this was a, a tremendous thing here. You see, they were supposed to say that Caesar is Lord, that Nero is Lord. And yet these Christians were saying Jesus is Lord to the very cost of their life. And so Celia would not say this, and the soldier took his sword and drew it and slashed at her head and cut into her neck, and she fell. He didn't have the heart to complete his work. She was so beautiful, so he ran away, and she died a lingering death. But they found her frozen in death with her fingers like this, the sign that Jesus is Lord. Now what is that? Jesus is Lord is a creed. It's an expression of a creed. You remember in Matthew 16, 31, where a Peter Answers Jesus' question when Jesus said, Who do the sons of men say that I am? You remember? 
And the disciples said, some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And Jesus said, but who do you say I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So when I have truly come to believe that Jesus is Lord in the sense of his deity, not just divine, or not just a divine attribute, but that he is God in human flesh. When I have come to believe that, it was not the work of any preacher. It was not the work of any book. It was the work of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul wants that to be put down uh, very quickly. He wants us also to know that when we say that Jesus is Lord, we have performed an act of worship. We confessed our faith this morning in the words of the Apostles' Creed. That's an act of worship. It's a creed, it's an act of worship to God. And it's also an oath of loyalty, that he is Lord over my life. I cannot say, Jesus is Lord, but I'm going to do this, this or that, because that's a contradiction in terms. If he is Lord, then he must be Lord over me. And no one can really come to that experience in life apart from the Holy Spirit. And so in verse 4 now, we come to the place where he says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Now let me say in the beginning that spiritual gifts should not be made a test of fellowship. What should be made the test of fellowship is that Jesus is Lord, that I believe that he is the Son of God, the promised Messiah. That's the test of fellowship. Not whether or not I speak in tongues, or not whether or not you speak in tongues, but that Jesus is Lord and that he is the Son of God who he claimed to be. That's, uh, that's the test of fellowship because we're going to learn, I hope, something about spiritual gifts here. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And here he means the Holy Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now here he begins to speak of the gifts of the Spirit. Now let me say this, you can tell a lot about the questions that people ask you when you go from group to group. If you've had the experience that I have of traveling around the country from time to time and preaching, you can go to certain churches, and the people who come up to you will say, uh, tell me about the Montreat Church. What kind of social program do you all have? And there are others who will say, uh, how many missionaries do you send out? And then there are others who will say, uh, how many people were added to your church by profession of faith? And then there are others who will say, what's your gift? <laughs> what's your gift? And... Uh, it gets a little embarrassing if they ask you that right after you preach the sermon. <laughs> but uh, let me say this about spiritual gifts, and I want to try to follow what I've got here so that we can get in as much as possible. Let me say there's a whole, there's so many books, 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 books on the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the baptism and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. You can get all different kinds of books. 
but go back and study uh, especially 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. Study also those little marginal references that, that give you the parallel passages that occur in Ephesians chapter 4 and in Romans chapter 12. Now let me just look at, just, uh, just say this much about spiritual gifts. Fact number one, and I want to say that I, I got the best information that at least it seemed to coincide most with what I believe <laughs> from uh, uh, Pastor Warren Wearsby and also from Stuart Briscoe and Stephen Olford, and also I got a lot of help from Bob Mumford too. Um, now, all of us don't always agree, uh, but we don't have to agree. We can work together. Now, spiritual gifts are important. This must be recognized. Uh, spiritual gifts are important. They are important to the individual Christian. Every Christian should know that he has at least one spiritual gift. And uh, so we want to uh, understand that, that uh, there is no person uh, who should suffer from religious inferiority and think that the Lord just passed him by and that he has no gift whatever, that he's sort of an evangelical blob and that he doesn't matter to God. Well, he does matter to God. Uh, and uh, we all matter to him. And we need to recognize that. Uh, we need to know that spiritual gifts are important to the church. The church is going to be operated by power, by an invasion of power. Is it going to be operated in the power of the Holy Spirit? Or is it going to be operated in the power of the flesh? Is it going to be operated in the power of the flesh or is it going to be operated in accordance with Scripture and the power of the Holy Spirit? Spiritual gifts are important to God. You notice here the Trinity is revealed to us. He says that there are diversities of gifts but the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit. There are differences of administration but the same Lord, that's Jesus. There are diversities of operation, that's the same God, Father. God the Father. And so we need to, to realize this and we need not to be discouraged. I remember when I was a young boy out in West Texas, I took a little country church and I used to listen to Dr. Charles E. Fuller on the Old Fashioned Revival Hour every Sunday afternoon. And one day when I'd made a particular horrible flop with trying to preach, I wrote him a letter and told him how discouraged I was. And to my great astonishment, I got a letter back and he had written something uh, there that helped me a great deal. I expected him to commiserate with me, but instead he said that discouragement was the work of the devil. And he said, you're falling into the devil's trap if you allow him to discourage you so that you do not want to preach. And this is a thing that I have to fight against. Over and over again I have this feeling. And so the evil one often seeks to discourage us. Uh, there are gross sins that we would never think of committing, but we will submit uh, to things such as discouragement. Uh, and so Dr. Fuller wished to correct me right quickly at that point. Uh, then uh, we look at fact, num fact number one is that spiritual gifts are important. We need them in the church. Now let me say that I am thankful for what is called the charismatic movement. And if you ask me if I am charismatic, I am. And so are you, if you are a Christian. Because if you are a Christian, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit, I believe, when you became a Christian. 
You may come into the fullness of the Holy Spirit in a deeper measure. Later, you may have many infillings of the Holy Spirit. But every true believer, every regenerate individual, every person who has been born again is charismatic. He has a gift of the Spirit. And that's what the word charisma means. It means gift. It means gift. And every Christian has a gift. Spiritual gifts are important. Spiritual gifts are to be governed by the Word of God. We get into trouble when we do not govern them by the Word of God. And I think at this point that uh, if you will remember this, it will be well worth having come to church today. That the most important, the most important thing that the Holy Spirit can ever do in your life and in mine is to bring about the Lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. That's the most important thing. Now, it's not the, the, the gifts that we're going to get into here later. Gifts are gifts, and we're to remember that. Now, spiritual gifts uh, have, to be, have to be measured by the Word of God. If you go through the book of Acts, you will find that there are conversions where people do speak in tongues, such as occurred at Pentecost, such as occurred at Cornelius when the Gentiles are now evidently going to be preached to. Then you will find also that there are conversions like the Ethiopian. You remember Philip and the Ethiopian in Acts chapter 8 when that man was being explained, Isaiah 53, and he said, What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said to him, Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And he said that he did, and they stopped the chariot, and the man was baptized. There's no evidence there that he spoke in tongues. If you come to the uh, account of Lydia, you will see that the Lord opened her heart to hear the words which Paul spoke to her, and she became a believer in her household. She did not speak in tongues. If you read about the Philippian jailer who was told that night, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house, he did. But he did not speak in tongues. So you cannot pick out one gift and make that one gift the norm of all Christian experience. Uh, it would be wrong to single out one gift. So spiritual gifts have to be governed by the Word of God, not just by our experience. You get into trouble if you, if you base um, your belief on experiences because experiences and feelings vary. If you'll feel under the pew, you can feel probably some chewing gum that someone has put there at one time or another. Well, now, when you feel of that, it's probably someone else's pleasure which has been expended, an old experience. And that's about the way it is when you try to pass along uh, your faith related to someone else's experience. Uh, experiences vary. Your faith should be regulated by the Word of God. And so spiritual gifts are important. Spiritual gifts are to be governed by the Word of God. And spiritual gifts are varied. I can't play the organ. Tom plays it. There are about 19 gifts that are listed in the Bible, and I don't have time uh, to go into all of them. Uh, I'm sure that, that gifts such as that are gifts that the Lord enables one to make praise to him. 
The other Sunday, I came out here expecting to hear uh, how firm a foundation to the tune that I was familiar with, and I called out the first tune, and, and it was one of the Christmas carol tunes, and it jolted me because I don't read music. But Tom does read music. He played what I told him to play right on the spur of the moment. It was a shock to me, but it wasn't to him. Uh, he, he could read the music. Now, there are people who have an experience of speaking in tongues, and I believe that it's authentic and it's genuine. I don't believe that Pat Boone is deluded and Charles Colson is deluded and uh, Elizabeth Sherrill and her husband were deluded. I believe that there are many people who have had this experience and it's authentic, and we should thank God that their experience has been a blessing to them. And none of us should be afraid uh, to allow someone else uh, to have an experience that may vary from ours, but we must always remember that experiences are to be governed by the Word of God and that we cannot make one of the gifts the norm of Christian experience and that uh, these gifts are varied. If you look at verse 28 of, of chapter 12, you, you find an interesting list. Paul had talked about the body. The church is a body. And, and how necessary all of the parts are to the body. And then he talks about the gifts. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings. Now that's the most accurate. That may mean uh, healing both when someone has prayed for someone to be healed and they're healed. And it may be the gift like Luke, the beloved physician, would administer his healing skills, which he had learned. Oral Roberts University has now installed a, a medical school. And this is significant, that there are healings there. Catherine Kuhlmann, a, a person who evidently was used of God to bring liberation and healing to many, uh, died a few weeks ago of, of open-heart surgery. Um, uh, she had submitted to surgery. Uh, when people ask me, all people do not get well, all the faith healers so-called die. I don't know any of them who lives forever. Something's going to get us all. One day, if we live long enough, I've got these glasses on. I know a lot of good charismatics who wear glasses. I have to get my teeth filled. As, as I wear on in life, my parts need help. And uh, uh, so, so, and I don't think I'm less spiritual because of it. Spiritual gifts are varied. None of us is going to live forever. But God can perform a miracle when he chooses, and we have a right to ask, and God has a right to say no. And then I want to get in my fourth point, which is that spiritual gifts are given for the good of the whole church. Spiritual gifts are given for the good of the whole church. If the charismatics haven't done anything else, they've done one thing, and that's they've made us read the Bible again. They've caused people to go around with the Bible. I've seen more Bibles at church since we've had charismatics around here than I can remember in the 14 years I've been around here. And that's good, because that means that the Holy Spirit will speak through the Holy Scriptures according to the Presbyterian faith in order the only infallible rule of faith and practice is the Scriptures. And we are getting back to the scriptures, and that's a good thing. Now let me say just a moment about the body, and then uh, I'll close. Now he wants us to know, for the body is not one member, but many. 
Now, I take that all of us are baptized in one spirit, and we are in the body. Uh, we may not have all the same gifts. He speaks here of the gifts uh, such as the gifts of healing, and right after that, the gifts of helps. That is, the word there for helps is an interesting word. It means to help someone carry a load, to see someone carrying something that's too heavy for them, and you come and pick up a part of it and walk along beside them, helping them to carry it. That's the gift of helps, and that's a very beautiful gift. You can look at the other gifts. One of the things that has impressed me the most in reading the letters of Paul is that when you get to the end of his letters, have you ever noticed that long list of names of people that he sends greetings to and that he singles out who did so much work? We have a Sunday school superintendent here who works all the time getting Sunday school teachers calling people to help. She takes an enormous load off of me. She doesn't get paid one penny for it. And she calls person after person, goes to get books, sees about things, calls on others. There are people who come here and usher. It's not easy to usher. People don't always sit where you want them to. I've been sitting in this place for 20 years, and you're not going to tell me. Uh, is, <laughs> you see, well, uh, that, that's something. There are gifts of, of administration, which li literally means to pilot like a, a, a someone who comes and gets on board a ship and leads you through a channel, someone who is a guide of administration, organization, all of those are gifts that are there. Now, he tells us that they are likened to a body. And I uh, uh, like what he says, that I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. You can't reach down with your eyelash and snatch up something, so you need your hand to pick up something. I can't get it with my eyelashes. I've seen some girls that I think could have made it. But, but uh, you can't get it with your eye. And uh, you know what he says next? He, he says here, I have, I have no need of you. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet. I have no need of you. Your feet. How would you like to bounce down the road on your head? instead of walking home. Your feet are useful. And the Lord's got all kinds of people to work in his church, and, and the body is that way. And he tells us here that there are some parts of our bodies that we can't see that are very important. Uh, if you ever have anything wrong with your gallbladder, you'll know it's important. If you have anything wrong with your liver, you'll know it's important. Uh, we don't see our liver, I can't see the thyroid glands or uh, these other parts of the body, but they are very important. Now then, uh, he is saying that in the church, there are people who can teach and there are people who can sing. There are people who are skillful at one thing and skillful at another. We all need to realize our gifts from the Lord and work together. And in chapter 13, which we'll study next week, he's going to tell us how absolutely essential it is that our gifts be governed by love. That our gifts be governed by love, and when they are governed by love, then we work together. Then we work together. You see, when a person is crowned as king or queen, 
I remember the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. And going over there that summer and looking at Westminster Abbey, I didn't, I didn't see it, but I saw all the things that were left in place, and then I saw it on film. To see the crown put on the queen, and to hear them sing, uh, uh, God save the queen, and God bless our native land. She's queen. And when they placed the crown upon her head, her hand was the hand of a queen. Her foot was the foot of a queen. They didn't put the crown on her foot. They didn't put it on her hand. They put it on her head. But she's honored all the way through. Now then, the gifts which God has given to the church by the ministry of the Holy Spirit are gifts which are important, which we want to desire. They are gifts uh, which want, we want to see are governed by the Word of God. They are gifts which we must recognize as varied. And uh, these gifts are important for us to remember, that they are gifts uh, which are varied and that the Spirit has given them to the whole church, to the whole church, and we need them all the people who speak in tongues and don't speak in tongues. We need each other. Let's stand, and I'll just close with prayer. Our Heavenly Father, when we think about the great decision that was made 32 years ago, which meant life or death for so many in the world, we think of the great coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and we think also of the personal decision that each one of us have to make regarding Jesus as Lord, or whether or not he's dethroned in our lives. Help us to know that when we truly yield to his Lordship, that that's the gracious ministry of the Holy Spirit, and that the Spirit and all his gifts are ours, and that we are to desire these gifts. We're not to covet one another's gifts, but we are to work together for the purpose of glorifying you in the church. Help us, O oh Lord God, to study your word and to be governed by it, Help us to yield up our lives to your Lordship. And if any person here has not known Jesus as Lord, may this morning, June the 6th, 1976, be the day that Jesus invades that life by the power of the Holy Spirit and takes possession of that one forever. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion of the Holy Spirit our teacher and our helper and our guide, be and abide with us all now and forever.